Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. However, not all interviews feature public company management teams. Every once in a while, I get the chance to interview industry experts, and this is one of those interviews. This talk podcast is really honored to have Chris Ignolfi on the program. Chris is a managing director and equity analyst with Jeffrey's Research. He's one of Wall Street's top ranked analysts when it comes to midstream and MLPs. And he's certainly the guy that I went to when I was on the buy side, when I had any questions about any of the midstream companies that I covered. He's one of the most thoughtful people that I've ever met on Wall Street. And he's certainly one of the most well-spoken people that I've met within the industry. And just by the mere fact of him appearing on this podcast lends, at least in my opinion, my biased opinion, quite a bit of credibility to the stock podcast. Chris agreed to join the program to provide listeners with a primer on the midstream and MLP space and talk about just some of the really big, important developments that are going on in the industry today. It's a super fascinating conversation, and I really hope you all enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get to Chris Ignolfi with Jeffrey's Research. Chris, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast, especially as earnings are going on, and I'm sure you're really swamped. But it would be great to just start out hearing about your background and how you got into equity research and well, just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, the, the Cliff Notes version, Nate, is... is I'll keep it tight, is that I was in college without really an idea as to what I wanted to do. Um, so I was a philosophy, political science major, and I had um, an interest in research. I'd worked in a bio-research lab in the summers in college, but had a real interest in economics as well in the financial markets. Uh, and I went to Penn, where there's a very strong undergraduate business school. So a lot of it was shaped by who was recruiting at Penn and then those sort of bookends of my interests. And I had a couple of fraternity brothers that had gone into research, equity research, and uh, based on their experiences, thought that that might be a great place to start a career. And so I was fortunate enough to interview and get a position with UBS. That was fall of my senior year. So when I started with them after graduation, took time getting series licensed, et cetera, and then interviewed with every team that had an opening, every research team that had an opening and happened to land on an energy team. One that was fairly broad in its mandate. It was covering electric utilities. It was covering MLPs. It was covering diversified gas and gas utilities. And actually, my first job was to help an analyst on that team build out coverage of the U.S. coal sector, coal miners. And gradually over time at UBS, I got more exposed to the diversified gas companies. And they had a lot of assets that eventually migrated into independent MLP formations. And so that's really the the, uh, pathway that I got to looking at master limited partnerships, got to looking at midstream assets, and got familiarity with the companies and the management teams that were operating. And then about five years ago, had an opportunity to leave UBS and come to Jefferies, where I am now, to help them build out coverage, research coverage of the midstream and MLP space, not something that Jefferies had ever covered before. And so, you know, greenfield seats on the sell side are few and far between. And it was a sector that I thought was of interest to me from a longer term perspective and had a lot of positive fundamental tailwinds. I thought we could, you know, write a lot about and keep it keep it interesting from an investment standpoint. So came across to Jeffries and have been here since. And then about two years ago, we, we launched out on refining as well, in part because refiners were buying independent midstream companies 
and they were using a lot of their excess cash to build midstream infrastructure. So that's our current coverage today is midstream and refining. Yeah, I didn't realize that you started the MLP research focus at Jefferies. I, for some reason, thought that Jefferies had already had a, an MLP team before you got there. But that's pretty impressive that you've built it to what you've built it to. I mean, it's one of the most well-regarded MLP teams out today. Yeah, I think we got lucky in a couple regards. Uh, one was that the space was mature enough by the time we launched coverage here that we knew what we wanted to cover that was relevant to most institutional investors and also what we didn't have core competency in. I'm sure we'll get into it in the course of this interview, Nate, but the MLP model experienced quite a proliferation over the course of the shale boom. And MLPs as tax structures were used for operations that were never, I think, fully intended to be warehoused in an MLP. So we've been, we've been really lucky at Jefferies that we've been able to keep it tight, the coverage that is, to what we know. And I think as a result, I've had quite a bit of success with it. Yeah. So what does Jefferies do exactly? Well, Jefferies is a financial services company. It's, you know, principally it's an investment bank, but we do have merchant bank operations as part of our holding company. We are at present a wholly owned subsidiary of Lucadia Corporation, which trades under the ticker LUK. But Jefferies is the financial, the largest sort of financial services concern within Lucadia. It's principally an investment bank. It has you know, a full suite of um, equity, debt, capital market, investment banking, and research functions. And it's headquartered here in, in New York City. The research effort domestically covers about 1,000 different stocks uh, of all different makes and, and types. And then globally, we have research coverage in, in Europe and in Asia as well. So, Chris, could you describe what an MLP is and what the midstream industry does? And maybe even give us a sense for whether or not it's more appropriate to just call it midstream instead of using the acronym MLP. Uh-huh. Well, maybe I'll start there, Nate. I, th- I think referring to, I refer to myself as a midstream analyst. Um, and I think as you, as you sort of hinted about in the, in the way you phrased the question, the MLP structure has a life cycle. The nature of how the companies themselves are structured and, and how those, those structurings put financial pressure over the course of time that is different than a normal company simply means that it has a bit of a predetermined life cycle. And we are now at the later stages for many companies of that natural, useful life. And so what we've seen the last five years or so is companies that were very early to MLP formation moving back towards traditional C-corporation configuration. The assets have remained the same. And when you think about midstream assets, Nate, what we're talking about principally are pipelines, storage assets, uh, terminals, mostly related to hydrocarbons in this country, so natural gas, natural gas liquids, crude oil, refined product, um, and then bulk, which is typically coal and other other uh, energy products. And then there's the infrastructure associated with that. So, you know, shipping companies can be in the midstream vertical, although I, I, th- I tend to think of them as shipping. And then there's the distribution companies, propane distributors, 
and the like. So that's the midstream space. The assets were the same, principally speaking, 20 years ago that they are today. They were moved and migrated into MLP structures, and they are now migrating away. So we refer to it as midstream space, but a lot of folks still refer to it as MLP, and there are still a number of MLPs out there. You mentioned you mentioned the MLP life cycle. What do you mean by that? And could you also help us understand why a company would elect an MLP corporate structure as opposed to as opposed to a as opposed to a corporation? So I I think the life cycle is driven by the structure, and so maybe it's most helpful to think about what is the structure of an MLP vis-a-vis what you might think of or your listeners might think of as a normal company. And an MLP, the, the singular benefit of an MLP is that it avoids, it's a partnership. It's, it's a company who is electing for U.S. tax purposes to be listed as a partnership and treated as such. And so it's not paying U.S. corporate income taxes. The partners themselves are responsible for their proportional share of the earnings of the company, and that's where you you'll frequently uh, hear reference to K one filings. Yeah. So if you own if you own equity interest in one of these master limited partnerships, you'll receive a K one, which will give you showcase to you to you your your proportional interest in the earnings of the company, which you will then have to report on your own taxes and and pay tax on you know at your own rate. But because they avoid taxation at the corporate level. There's a better, it's, it's more economic, it's more efficient from a cash perspective. And so they can pay out distributions to their unit holders that are more elevated than a traditional company would that would have to reserve for tax. And those distributions themselves are largely avoid tax because they're treated as a, in many instances, as a return of capital. And so they're attractive if you own them and you're interested in an in a income stream. But as a result of all that, they are structured such that the controlling entity, often referred to as the general partner, has the responsibility of, of control over the assets of the company. And so you, you sacrifice, if you're a shareholder in a normal company, that company is going to be run by a board of directors and you're going to have the opportunity through annual elections to shape that board. Yeah, you may have seen, you know, activist investors get involved in some very high profile companies, reshape the board, as a result, reshape the strategy of the company. With a with a master limited partnership, if you own units in the limited partner, you don't have the ability to reshape the board. You don't have a, r- a real ability to shape over the course of time what it is the general partner is going to do strategically uh, with the assets of the company or what you know what it's going to invest in, what it's going to divest you're really putting a lot of faith in that general partner community. And so you're doing so because it's tax efficient and there's a significant income component to it, which is also tax efficient, but you're giving things up along the way. And the other thing that you need to note is that many MLPs, but not all, many MLPs were structured upon inception to have an incentive for that general partner to grow the limited partner uh, payout. So if, if on an IPO, for example, if I'm trying to convince you to buy into a limited partner structure where you're going to give up the ability to have any say in the control of the business, 
a way to maybe convince you to do that is to have a structure in place whereby the general partner is incented to grow your payout. And that is typically referred to as an incentive distribution right, or, or the acronym is referred to as an IDR, where over the course of time, if the general partner is successful in this strategy and growing the limited partner's per unit quarterly cash payout through certain predetermined levels, it has, the general partner has an ability to earn an outsized percentage of future cash flows from the company. And so think about it simplistically, it's a graduated tax scheme. Um, and so the, it, it, in effect, what do you mean by that? A graduated tax scheme? Well, so if you take a look at it, if you look at the U S as a personal investor, right, the more money you make, the higher tax bracket you're in and the more taxes you owe. In effect, an MLP, a limited partnership, can be thought of as having the same thing. The more successful it is as, a, as it pertains to the limited partner quarterly cash distribution, the more of the partnership's cash incrementally over time it has to share with, it, with the general partner. And so a general partner typically has 2% of the book equity position in the company, but in the terminal state, it will be earning 50% of all incremental cash distributed from the company. And so that's why I talk about life cycle because up until the end of last year, the, the corporate tax rate in the U.S. was 35%. And so if you took assets from a corporation paying 35% corporate tax rates and move them to an MLP and they're suddenly not paying corporate tax rates, there's a significant advantage. But if that company then grows and grows and grows over the course of years and decades and is suddenly paying 50%, of its marginal earnings, marginal cash outlay to its partner, it's actually in the terminal mature state, perhaps in a worse situation than its taxable peer that never never became an MLP. And so that in large measure shapes the time cycle, the, the life cycle of the MLP. And some companies had simply grown to be too large and they were so mature into that IDR sharing agreement with the general partner that they were rendered non-competitive relative to their peer group. And that's the breaking point that's caused a lot of very mature MLPs to pivot back to being C-Corps. If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes, so go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.